3: 18
2: plus. Hey everybody and welcome to the billboard.com Pop Shop podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield and I am the co-director of charts at Billboard. Joining me as always is billboard.com senior editor Katie Atkinson. Hello Katie. Oh, hey Keith. How are you? Doing great. We've got a one two punch of nostalgia today on the show with an unlikely pairing of Foo Fighters and Celine Dion. It will all make sense soon enough, we promise. Uh, well, because the, the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things Foo Fighters, Celine Dion, pop on Billboard's Weekly Charts, and pop on Billboard's Weekly Indeed. Charts. That makes more sense when you actually say those words together. That's That makes more sense. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop.
4: Today on the show, we've got coming around again with Billboard.com senior associate editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be discussing the 20th anniversary of Foo Fighters' album The Color and the Shape with Chris DeVille, senior news editor at Stereogum. Plus, Andrew will discuss the 20th anniversary of Celine Dion's Titanic theme song My Heart Will Go On with writer Mickey Rapkin, who wrote our oral history of the song in this week's issue of Billboard. Rapkin also, by the way, wrote the book Pitch Perfect, which inspired the film series of the same name. So stay tuned for that in just a few moments.
2: But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode. And heck, give us a rating or review while you're at it. Only five stars, please. If you have Mm. any questions for us, well, no, really, be honest. Um, Feel free to tweet us at Keith underscore Caulfield or at KT Atkinson. And... If you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit itunes.com slash billboardpodcasts. Well, before we join Andrew, let's talk a little bit about My Heart Will Go On. The song, of course, from the film Titanic, uh, debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, dated February twenty eighth, 1998, following its release in late 1997 on both Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love album as well as the Titanic soundtrack, 1997. See, that's why its 20th anniversary is this year. Yeah, Um, The track spent two weeks at number one and continues to be a hugely popular track all these years later. In fact, in 2016, it was Celine's most streamed song in the U.S., as it generated more than 60 million on-demand audio and video streams, according to Nielsen Music. Whoa! Yeah, right? (laughs) I know, right? I was kind of surprised by that, too. Yeah,
4: that's a huge number.
2: Uh, Where does My Heart Will Go On rank among your favorite Celine Dion tunes, Katie?
4: I mean, it's a classic, obviously. Um, I, I like looking back on it now, when I was in the thick of it, might have heard it a few too many times.
2: Yeah, it was everywhere.
4: But I'm a huge fan of It's All Coming Back. That is my Celine Dion. It's all coming fam. back to me now. That is a that is a hard karaoke song too, just FYI. I think
2: most Celine Dion songs uh, are yeah. Hard. If you're trying to keep
4: up with Celine uh it's never a good thing. So you know now near far, wherever you are, it's time for coming around again.
3: Hello and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary-themed podcast celebrating milestone anniversaries in the music world. I'm Andrew Unterberger, and uh, today we're going to be talking about the Foo Fighters' The Color and the Shape album, which turns 20 on Saturday. Uh, and this was the band's second album it's, it went on to be their best-selling. It's probably the one that they're best associated with today. Uh, and on the line to talk about it with us uh, is Stereogum senior news editor Chris DeVille, who's going to be writing about it for Stereo Gum on Friday. What's up, Chris? Hey, what's up, Andrew? Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. And uh, so we were corresponding about this a little bit before uh, before you jumped on the line, and you said that kind of the main thrust of your piece was going to be that this was the album where the Foo Fighters sort of came into their own as a real band. You know, that they, they started off as the side project of Dave Grohl, of course, was the drummer for Nirvana. Their first album, I believe, was recorded almost entirely by Grohl as he kind of fashioned a, a makeshift band to, to get out as a, you know, creative energies after you know, Nirvana's Untimely Demise. But uh, you think this is the one where they really kind of came into their own a, a, as, a, as a mainstream rock outfit. So what, what do you mean by that exactly?
0: Well, I mean, it, I mean, it literally is their first album as a band, for a thing. Like, like you said, the, the first one, uh, which is a fantastic album. And I feel like I should mention up front that kind of in the way that the first two Weezer albums I can go back and forth between which one's my favorite on a given day. Sure. I think the same is true for the first two Suiciders albums, but there's definitely a distinct quality of color and the shape where it's like, is not just Grohl doing everything, he's brought in, uh, reinforcements, and it has that, more of that band feel. Um, but it also, uh, you know, it, it contributed probably their most timeless song with Everlong. They had a timeless video too. Um, I don't want to say that like they were going nowhere before The Color and The Shape was around because they were pretty big on MTV with the first album and Big Me especially was was a really big MTV hit. Um, So I don't want to undersell the popularity of the first Foo Fighters album but uh, I think when you think about how Big, they got with Everlong, uh, and also with the other single on this album, "Monkey Wrench," and uh, my hero. They, I mean, to me, it was like kind of peak Foo Fighters.
3: Yeah, I I think it's sort of safe to say that this is the album that I think most people probably think of when they think of the Foo Fighters. uh, At least people who were you know who were around for it at the time, and. Like I don't think that the Foo Fighters necessarily have you know a, quote unquote masterpiece of an album. I, I just don't think they're that kind of band. I, the, the, their songs are they're a little bit too flimsy on the whole, and, and they don't necessarily do enough to really differentiate them. And they, they can be kind of complacent as a band in general. But I, I would say that if, if they did have a masterpiece, this would almost certainly be it because it, it does have as you as you mentioned, it has the. The very iconic singles that have that have held up surprisingly well, I would say, two decades later, uh, and it's very big sounding, and it, it's kind of got the flow of, of like a classic album, uh, but like I'd say it gets maybe like eighty five percent of the way there, even if that like little bit is still missing. Did, did, does that sound about right to you, or do you think that they actually got all the way there with this? I think that's about
0: right. Um, I mean, like I was struck. Upon revisiting the album, and how good a lot of the non-singles were. Mm-hmm. I mean, out of the gate, uh, I mean you start with "Doll" is, is kind of the classic low-key opener. It uh, kind of more than like a prologue than a, you know, than a real album opener. But you know, you got, after "Monkey Wrench, was, a, which is a big hit single. You get "Hey Johnny Park" and "My Poor Brain" and wind up, mm-hmm. and these these are all songs that. I think could have worked well as singles, um, and at the very least, they they kept me listening at the middle school where um, <laughs> I wasn't like I need to skip my CD player forward to get to the sure, yeah. singles. Um, and so I think that you know when I revisited these songs, the the deep cuts held up just as well as the singles did, um, and that's not something that I could say is true when I revisit other fighters albums uh after this one um i mean you you mentioned before we got on the line you mentioned that you you are also a fan of the one after this one uh there's yeah. nothing left to lose
3: yeah uh, that
0: I- one definitely has some highlights on it too uh, i have a lot of nostalgia attached to that record but i think to me the color and the shape is like the closest that they got to a front to back masterpiece for sure
3: Yeah, I would definitely say that there's nothing left to lose. It's not as big an album, certainly. Uh, It doesn't sound like as much as a definitive album. But I I would say that the problem I have with the color and the shape, if I do have the kind of one overarching problem with it, is that Dave Grohl doesn't really do angst that well, I don't think. I I think, generally speaking, when when he tries to... When he tries to either write from a play, like a personal place, or when he tries to get very aggressive uh, with with his lyrics and, and his singing, it doesn't really translate for me. I think like there's kind of like an inherent affability to, to Dave Grohl that I, I think he kind of can't escape in a weird way. And I, maybe that's just because I, I know him so well as a public figure over the last twenty years. Maybe it's an unfair assessment because of that. But the reason that I like uh, the, the the album after this one, which is there, there's nothing left to lose, which comes out two years later, uh, is because. I, I think he they, they sort of congeal as a, as a pop band at that point. You know the, the big single on that one was 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 "Learn to Fly" and that's that's basically just like a, a straight power pop song. It could have been a cheap trick song twenty years earlier. You know it's 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 very uh, it's not middle of the road, but it, but it's very like accessible and and he's not trying to be anything that he isn't at that point. And the rest of the album was kind of t- t- kind of takes its cue from that. I mean, there are like a, aggressive up tempo songs. But for the most part, there's this kind of gentleness to it, and there's a sort of like a chiming quality, and some of the songs are really dreamy in, in a weird way. Uh, and so, I would say like that's the album. Even even though the color and the shape is the album that I think of as the most Foo Fighters, the most Foo Fighters album, the album that I think of when I think of just like what the band like really should have been. I guess it's there. Is nothing left to lose. Does that make sense to you at all?
0: Yeah, it does. I, I mean, I am not sure that I necessarily agree that that's the route that they should have gone, but at the same time, uh, it, they I, I feel like Foo Fighters in the new millennium has very much been kind of like a R.A.W.K. rock For sure. cliche to mm-hmm. a point, and uh, uh, you, you can definitely question that decision from that perspective, maybe they should
3: have just become a power pop band. It <laughs> um, would, would have been a lot less stiff, certainly, I mean, than some of those the, later the records.
0: Stuff, the, the songs that we hear on Color in the Shape are essentially just power pop songs that are really revved
3: up, though. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you you already mentioned Everlong, and obviously, like, it's, it's hard to go more than you know a minute of talking about this album without talking about Everlong. That's, that's the song that really kind of rose above, and it's probably the... the I don't I don't even think it was that big a hit for them at the time but it's certainly become after the fact their 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 you know their marquee song like the, the song that even if you don't necessarily like the Foo Fighters that much you have to kind of give it up forever long. What about the song do you think really kind of makes it endure as, as the band's all-time classic? I mean
0: there's definitely like that dynamic build to it um, you know, it sounds like a huge song. Uh, you know, it, had, it starts with that quiet little guitarist. Um, which, by the way, I mean that—that that was part of the appeal of it for me. Uh, back, you know, when it was first released, it was like kind of one of the all-time classic. Figure out how to play this song <laughs> on your guitar in the basement.
3: Was Was it hard? I, I never really tried kind with that of one. Longs.
0: Oh, um, it was. You know, it's hard for me to say uh, whether the memories kind of blur together, whether I just. Guided off of a tab or whether I was able to figure it out. Um, it definitely wasn't fully straightforward, like, super obvious okay. how to do it. Um, but it was one of those where it's like, I was playing it and it's like, oh man, this is awesome. I feel like I'm, you know, capturing some kind of magic. But I, I think the biggest thing is it's just like kind of a, it's, a it's, it's like a classic power ballad, but there's so much more to it than that. Like, you know you start with that little quiet element and it builds and builds and builds it's got the, the different kind of sections with their various guitar heroics mm. and you ultimately have this, this chorus that is um, you know just simple few chords and, and, a, and a humongous melody um, and it's just the fact that it's, it's, it's a love song and like kind of communicating this, this passion that Sometimes in a Foo Fighters song, you you kind of feel like you're getting a, like, kind of the clip art version of like, (laughs) oh, like, yeah, and uh, I feel like there's some some real emotion being communicated in Everlong uh, that, that really translates and that people can
3: connect with. Yeah, that's well put, the the clip art comment, and I I think that's true. And I I think that in in addition to being kind of an unusually passionate song for Foo Fighters, it's also an unusually mysterious song. There's definitely something something going on with Everlong that you can't quite put your finger on right away, and the way it unfolds is very unpredictable, and unpredictable is not necessarily a word that you would often use uh, to describe the Foo Fighters' music, especially later on in their career. But yeah, that that one song definitely does kind of have that. Yeah, like you said, there's a sort of magic to it that was was rare for for pretty much all of alternative rock in 1997, and 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 specifically for the Foo Fighters. And and also uh, one of the things sort of helping that song and its mystique and its legacy uh, is its is its music video, which was played a lot on MTV back in the day. Uh, it's directed by Michelle Gondry. It's this kind of no, it's, it's a weird, like... It's, it's half Evil Dead pastiche and half 80s party movie and there's also some surrealistic elements to it and it's funny and Dave Grohl's hand grows to a gigantic size at one point, a couple points. Uh, w- what do you remember about this video really kind of, like, making it stand out in 1997? Well, why do you think, like, it's it's endured as kind of one of the classic videos of its day?
0: Well, I mean, the hand, to me, was the, <laughs> the stand out. It's, it's all a the hand. hand. that kind of emerged to to slap girls' foes when necessary. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. A lot of the the stuff that was being parodied, I I wasn't even old enough to know what it For was. Sure, yeah. Or like, I mean, maybe I, some of my friends had started to watch Evil Dead, but I was too sheltered or something. Um, and so, like, I, I knew that we were getting a kind of a pastiche of of you know these these older classic movie kind of aesthetics, um, and, and they were, you know, it was, it was evocative, but I didn't, I wasn't old enough to know what it was evoking, but I was definitely old enough to think that it was totally sweet that Grohl's hand was, was, you know, expanding to to this massive size <laughs> and smacking people in the face.
3: Yeah, and so I remember I, I bought the uh, the Michelle Gondry director's DVD set, uh, you know, when, when, that, when that was released on DVD, like seven or eight years after this video came out. and he he describes a bunch about the making behind it. And he says that, it, that the the shoot was kind of fraught with conceptual issues because like one of the band members' girlfriends didn't like that uh, that 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 he was in bed with another woman. And so they had to make it, you know, Taylor Hawkins and drag. And then Dave Grohl was worried that, uh, you know, there would be like uh, d- domestic abuse concerns if if he if he was seen uh, fighting with a woman. Uh, something like that and so Michel Gondry had to keep like, kind of nipping and tucking at the plot of the video until eventually it was this absolutely absurd concoction uh, but that's probably what made the video so great is that it kind of didn't follow any sort of obvious logic and that all these sort of workarounds that he had to employ ended up giving it this really kind of singular energy to it and, and you watch it today and it's still, it's not like any other video I've ever seen, certainly.
0: Yeah, so the, I was... Familiar with that backstory? So, is the giant hand thing like a, an improvisational <laughs> yeah. element, like that Godfrey
3: came up with later? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember how the giant hand plays in, but I remember that, like, at some point, he's just describing like his his bastardized version of the treatment to Dave Grohl, and he's like, "Okay, you're in bed with with your drummer, and then your hand grows big, and then everybody rocks out at the end." And Dave Grohl's like, "Okay, that makes sense." So you
0: mentioned uh, the um. Food Fighter songs are, are some of the best like mm-hmm. that's part of the appeal of Everlong is, is it's tight construction and uh, I, I think that really stood out to me I went to see Foo Fighters a few years after this album came out I think maybe they were on their fourth album at that time uh, and they were already kind of into that like yeah rock and roll caricature sure. kind of thing and when they played Monkey Wrench uh, you know Part of the appeal of Monkey Wrench is, you know, you kind of go barreling into that last verse where he's, he's shouting, and, you know, you, it's kind of like your classic fist pump moment in a rock and roll song, and it has everything to do with the song being, like, really tightly constructed and, and uh, you know, very specific to the dynamics, and so, like, he, before entering the third verse, he, he kind of stopped and did that kind of cliche rock concert thing where you just have the drums and he ch- mm-hmm. tries to get the crowd fired up and, uh, and they kind of slowly built up into that moment and it really took a lot of the magic out of the song um, and so I feel like a lot of these songs are, are like that where they, they do have a certain uh, dynamic momentum to them uh, that where it some of the later Foo Fighters songs feel a
3: little bit more tossed off. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think that you know, I, I, I can you know, I, I've never seen them live, so I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I can sort of see uh, the idea that these songs are so sort of, I don't know, they're, they're so tightly wound that that even loosening them a little bit and you can kind of, I can sort of imagine all the air seeping out of them just just by just by untightening them that little bit. So we 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 consider this to be kind of like the the, the big Foo Fighters album. And anyway, it's probably true, but if, if you had to guess, how many millions would you say that this this album sold? Like, what 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 number millions would you say that, that this has moved over the years? If you had to guess. Oh man,
0: that's a hard question. Uh, I assume you have
3: this information in front of you, and
0: you're going to reveal it. Unfortunately, so yes. Okay. Uh... I don't know, maybe, like, 3 million?
3: All right, that, that's actually lower than I would have guessed. It, it only sold 2 million, and that still makes it their best-selling album. And, you know, that's a respectable number, but it's certainly not, like, it's not an overwhelming number. It's, it's something like a third of what the Third Eye Blind album sold, maybe, like, a fifth of what the Matchbox 20 album sold. But, like, I, I would say if you were to ask people to, you know, Remember some of the, the bigger rock albums of this period. I think this is probably one of the first ones that people would mention. Why do Why do you think we sort of remember this album being more of a you know a force than it, than it actually might have been at the time?
0: I mean, I think that has a lot to do with kind of the prominence that the Foo Fighters have ascended to mm-hmm. in the years since then. I mean, like twenty years ago, it, it, you were still reading about the Foo Fighters as as a Nirvana offshoot when this album came out even though they were becoming a band of their own and Cole was like starting to prove himself as a songwriter and uh, they were scoring a lot of hits, kind of becoming their own thing, like the shadow of Nirvana was still hanging very heavily. And uh, I think also there were just so many peers and Foo Fighters have had the endurance that Mm -hmm. a lot of those other alt rock bands of their era didn't have. Societies are kind of like the last band standing from that era, and Grohl has become kind of like this friendly rock and roll spokesperson. And so I think that kind of retroactively gives this album a lot of historical import that might not have been clear at the time when when like we were kind of at the tail end of the altar the tail end <laughs> of the alt rock era.
3: Yeah. Uh and you, you know you mentioned their consistency I, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me for this one but I, I you know even though this was their best selling album and only sold something like two million they do have you know something like five or six platinum albums and so you, you kind of assume that this album was maybe more successful than it was because most most that's the way most bands careers work is that they have one like true peak album pretty early on and then it's kind of diminishing returns from there. But they they sort of bucked that, and they've just kind of sold well forever without being ever, like, the biggest selling band of their time. And I think that probably serves as, like, a pretty decent, you know, I don't know if it's a metaphor, but it's at least a symbol for the band's sort of reputation over the last 20 years in general, which is that, you know, they've never been the biggest band, they've never been, like, the best or the most acclaimed band, but they've always been there, they've always been in the mix, they've always been, like, unignorable, even if they haven't necessarily ever been at the absolute pinnacle, uh, so one more question before, before I let you go Chris uh, the extra U in color like the British spelling of color in the shape are, are you good with that do you think it's excusable I like
0: it uh, I mean I, if somebody was using it if somebody was just writing a sentence and spelled it with the U I would kind of roll my eyes but uh, I, I want that kind of pretentiousness out of my <laughs> my classic rock albums
3: Yeah, I would say that's a good kind of pretentiousness. No, I I agree with you. Somehow it fits, goes along with the cover weirdly well. I I, I couldn't explain it, but uh, it it, it certainly worked for them. All right, Chris Deville, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Everybody, look out for his piece, Running Friday and Stereo Gum, and uh, we'll have to have you on again soon, man.
0: Yeah, thanks. I look forward to the next time. All
3: right, talk to you later. All right, welcome back to Coming Around again. Uh next up we're we're going to we're going to cheat on this one a little because the song we're going to talk about doesn't actually celebrate its 20th anniversary until December 8th of this year. Uh but because uh we're going to have Celine Dion uh performing My Heart Will Go On at the Billboard Music Awards this Sunday on ABC, uh figured since she's celebrating the 20th anniversary early, so I mean, we're going to celebrate it too and, and to help talk about the song we have uh, Mickey Rapkin, who is the author of Pitch Perfect and a general culture writer, who wrote the, uh, this really awesome oral history about the song for us. It's going to be going up today on Billboard. So, uh, what's up, Mickey? How you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm doing all right. I, I'm I'm, I'm jazzed to talk about this song. Uh, yeah, I
0: love I love any chance to talk about it. my heart will
3: go on. Yeah, right. And then they, they come up so rarely. So. Uh, Let's start by kind of flashing back to 1997 here for a minute. What uh, what are your memories of either you know seeing Titanic in the theaters or hearing the song for the first time?
0: It's so funny. I was in
1: college, and I have such a specific memory. Like, I was so pumped to see Titanic. It was my cousin's bat mitzvah. I had, like, gone to Baltimore for her bat mitzvah. And I, like, forced my brother to go see Titanic with me, like, that Friday that it opened. Like before
3: we went to Temple. <laughs> all right, good call. And I, I
1: was like all in. Like I had, I remember when it got delayed six months, and I was like oddly bummed. I was like, I cannot wait for
3: this movie to come out. And what do you remember thinking about it once you did it live up to the hype for you, or was it was it was it was disappointing? Oh, I, I was like all in. Like I was okay. crying. It was like it had totally lived up to the hype. Yeah, I actually. I don't know if I was, it's just because I was really young at the time. I think I was, I was, I guess, 11 when this movie came out. And I don't remember going into it with any expectations. I remember thinking, oh, it's, I don't know, it's historical fiction. I didn't really care about that at the time. Uh, you know, I, I sort of knew some of the actors, but I didn't really have, like, a huge emotional attachment to any of them. I, I probably didn't even know who James Cameron was at the time. Uh, and, wow. like, it, I, I, the, the effect that this movie has, when you're seeing it for the first time as a young teenager, like... You know, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't care who you were. Like, the the, the power of this movie was just merciless. Like, uh, I, I remember looking at my watch after the movie ended, and I couldn't believe that it was like a three and a half hour long movie. Like, I, I felt like it. Like, I, I was so gross. You gone by. You had a 11 year old beard. You were starving. Yeah, it, 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 it was like that in a way. Uh, so. Going back to your your oral history, which which, is, which I really enjoyed reading, I gotta say, uh, like one of the things that I found most immediately interesting about it was that I, I had forgotten that like leading up to this movie and, and to My Heart Will Go On, uh, Titanic, like it kind of had like a lot of negative energy around it. It Had some some really bad buzz. People were calling it Cameron's folly. Like it it, it was. It was not thought to be something that was going to be like even not, not just as big as it was, but like something that was even going to break even, I think. So it, was it surprising to, to go back to this like enormously, almost unprecedentedly successful movie and song and like hear all these people talking about what a disaster they thought it was going to be?
0: It's funny. It's like easy to talk about a film
1: that everyone thought was going to be a disaster when
3: it goes on to make like a billion dollars. So everyone sort of—it's it's fun to revisit that for these people. But
1: yeah, people were talking about—you know—this was a. I think it was a co-production between Fox and Paramount, and it was like this movie that was going to take down two studios. Um, yeah, it was funny. I talked to to, to Billy, who directed the video, mm-hmm. and he, uh, which fun trivia, he also directed the movie Honey.
3: Uh, which maybe <laughs> last, I have forgotten. I Did it. not oh, know that okay. either.
1: Back in the day. Anyway, the point of the story is he, you know, he went to Paramount for this meeting because he had to meet to meet with them to possibly direct this video for the for My Heart Will Go On, and they were, you know, he was like this unknown kid, basically, and they were telling him how bad the movie was going to be, that it was going to bomb, and then he, like, went to see it in a screening room by himself on the lot and, like, was weeping, and he was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about, this movie's going
3: to be a huge hit. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of crying in your story in general. I think I lost count of the number of times where, like, so somebody's somebody's big quote ends with them saying, "Oh, and then like I took out my Kleenex and it was all ratty, or that I looked in the that, you know, in the aisles and everyone was was falling." True. Yeah, Even like Billy Zane is talking about like the <laughs> night of the premiere and how just like all
0: these titans of the industry, he looks around and everyone's just
3: weeping. So James Cameron, who obviously directed the movie, uh, you I don't think you got to talk to him for your piece, unfortunately, but uh, he still kind of towers over it as this very imposing figure, uh, and it seemed like everyone kind of in the world of Titanic was scared to broach the subject of My Heart Will Go On with him because they say, uh, you, you, I think somebody says in your piece that his favorite bands were Ministry and Metallica.
1: Yeah, there was this, this whole sort of thing looming over the movie that uh, James Cameron was adamant that he did not want to end the movie with a pop song. That's sort of how these guys remember it. Mm-hmm. You know, that Cameron didn't want a pop song at the end like he supposedly said, would you put a pop song on the end of Schindler's List? Which,
3: which, which, is, a, which like, is a crazy quote. A hilarious, I Hilarious, mean,
1: over-the-top thing to say, but Yeah, whatever, James Cameron sort of earned the right to say over-the-top things for sure. But, anyway, so James Horner, who wrote the score for the film, he really wanted to have a song and he sort of on the sly wrote My Heart Will Go On and got Will Jennings to write the lyrics, and then they sort of quietly go to Celine to try to get her to record the song, and she hates it at first glance, doesn't want to record it, and her husband Renee sort of coaxes her into, like, basically, like, Celine will do a demo, which was, like, a big deal at the time because Celine was super famous. That uh, yeah. kind of crazy that she would cut a demo. Basically, cool. um, it was like it was almost like this—I don't know—this like heist thing to try to like get the tape to right. James Cameron when
0: he's in a good mood to convince him to use the song.
3: Well, the, the funny thing to me about uh, you know them deciding to get Celine involved in the process is that uh, at least according to I can't remember who it was in your piece, but they, they say that the reason James Horner reached out to her is because he remembered that she had done a version of the theme song to American Tale 2, uh, The Five the Goes West, which... Totally. She was like an unknown at the time. And she had recorded this apparently amazing demo of that song. But I get the powers that be in the, the American Tale universe. want to go <laughs> back to Linda, <laughs> Linda Ronstadt who that, recorded right? the, um, the theme song for the first movie. Uh, but James
1: Horner like never forgot this amazing Celine mm-hmm. vocal... And he was, you know, at this point, Celine is hugely famous, and he's writing the song, and all he can think about is, do you think Celine would do it?
3: <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's crazy to me that that was what swayed him, and not the fact that, you know, she had already had, like, several mega-hits for movie themes before. Like, like she, had, she had just had Because You Loved Me two years earlier, and that was from Up Close and Personal, and, then, exactly, you know, Beauty and the Beast...
1: Was, you know, she was one of the reasons she didn't even want to bother recording this demo. She's like, I've been to the Oscars. <laughs> she's like, I won the gold medal. You know, she's sort of like, she was, I have to say, having never talked to her before, she was very funny. Like, she has a great sense of humor uh, about herself, about incidents. Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that, because you're right, in, in the piece she comes off like a really, really likable person, and she she definitely doesn't seem, you know, uh, you know diva-like at all, and she, does, she doesn't seem, uh, you know, she, she doesn't no, she even seem like, sick of being asked about this song. From,
1: yeah, she, like, called me from the car on the way to her, you know, 2000th performance or whatever, <laughs> Caesar's, and she had, a good, like, an amazing sense of humor, mm-hmm. um... And just, yeah, she was just, you know, she remembered being in the suite at Caesar's Palace when James Horner came to play the song for the first time. And she's, for them, and she's, like, talking about how she's basically sitting behind him on the couch, like, doing one of these, like, motions at her neck, like, we cannot do this song, it's horrible. <laughs> um yeah, you know, And she's funny, you know, she's surprising. She's telling me about the night that they, she actually laid down the vocals in the studio. She's like, I hated it. I didn't want to do it. I had coffee, which I never have when I sing. She's Suddenly she's telling me that she's having her lady times and she's having cramps.
3: I think the exact uh, expression that she uses is girly pains, in fact. Lady
1: times was going to come up in, in my call with Celine.
3: Uh-huh, yeah. So I think that the exact expression she uses is girly pains, which is... Oh, yes. Fantastic. Even better. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, the sort of central controversies of, of your piece is that there's this sort of running debate. Uh, you, know, you know, different sources saying different things about. You know, so she gets in the studio and she records a demo version in one take with James Horner, uh, and she says, "Okay, now when are we going to do the real thing?" And, and they basically say, "Well, what are you talking about? That that one take was was perfect. Let's just use that." And then you have the, the the person that actually produced the final version. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but Walter Afanasiev? Is that my close? I, I have pronounced it so many different ways, but I think that is right. All right, it's great. Like, we'll go with that. The industry is Walter A. <laughs> well, that makes sense. But in any event, uh, Walter A seems to think that. Okay, that demo version was the one used in the movie, but the one that made the big hit single was one that I recorded with her, and it was like a redo of the song. Uh, d- do you have a take on this? D- d- does one side of the story seem more convincing than the other? What's, what's your opinion? You know, it's,
0: I had sort of tried to A and B them and play
1: them side by side. There's just a lot of production in the version that's in the movie. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the version
3: that was on the radio. Mm-hmm. So, to my ears, I couldn't, I wasn't sure.
1: Um but Walter was, you know, adamant. Like I was not expecting that conversation. He was like, "I've never talked about this before." But really, he was—he was really emotional. He's like, "For my legacy, I really want to tell the truth." Like
3: mm-hmm. for
1: the radio version, like we, she sang it again for me, and I took this like sort of tinny piano version and turned it into this big production. But Celine herself didn't. Like I, I'm actually not sure she didn't remember. And uh, other people were like, she, why would she sing it again? Like, we had it, everybody was happy, Selene's very busy, she's not going to do this again if you, know, if everyone's happy with the, the vocal.
0: So I, I actually, I don't really know, so I just sort of in the piece present both sides of the story.
3: Yeah, the, the debate's going to have to live on, I guess, between fans on that one. Uh, exactly. But uh, speaking of debates, uh, so you, you get some kind of interesting... Deferring like final takes on the song from various Titanic cast members in the piece, uh, you, you don't you don't talk to Kate Winslow specifically, but you have people kind of recalling that she hates the song and that you know she wants to vomit every time she hears it. Uh,
0: yeah, a couple of years ago there was this sort
1: of story. I guess someone had asked her in an interview somewhere about the song, and she had said it like makes her sick and she like, wants to puke when she hears it. Um, and Celine was very funny about it. You know,
3: she, I heard that Kate said that, and I love Kate, but, like, try singing it all these times. Yeah, but, it was is fair enough. John, one of the producers on the film was like, no, I actually talked to Kate about that. And she wasn't talking about
1: the song itself. She was talking about the fact that every time Kate goes into a restaurant, they play the song. And she just, like, can't get away from it in her personal life, in, like, a moments where she's just trying to be, you know, Kate Winslet, and
0: yeah. not
1: Kate Winslet the actress.
3: And maybe because she's one of the two principal leads, and it is the love theme, she uh, she gets it more than some of the rest of the cast members. But uh, Billy Zane, who you also talked to in the piece uh, and who played the kind of the the, the villainish cad in the movie, he seems to really get it. He's he's like, oh, you know, whenever I hear that song in a karaoke room in Farsi, I I think it's great. Uh, well, what was he like for the article? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's he
0: he was worried. That we were going to be making fun of the song, uh-huh. you know. I'm like, I swear,
1: I'm not making fun of the song. Like, it's been fun to do this piece and listen to the song again. But he was like, very passionate. Like, why would he possibly make fun of the song? Because
3: it's sincere. Because it's successful. He like, <laughs> went on like a very long tirade. Very about, righteous. Like lamenting the fact that movies no longer have these, you know, brand uh, theme songs. He's like, he's like, I want more Barbara Streisand. I want more Celine. Well, since you mentioned that, this is one of the things that I was sort of wondering about, kind of after reading your piece and thinking about it more in retrospect. Like, so this song kind of comes out in, in a pretty big moment for big soundtrack singles, uh, and like the kind of iconic sort of ba- sweeping ballads that you think of when you when you think of of a big like blockbuster songs like you have this you have uh, uh how do I live from Con Air and then the next year you have I don't want to miss a thing from Armageddon and they're all you know yeah. enormous hits and then they last on the radio forever and this is probably the biggest one of all of them but then after this yeah. period the, the, yeah, the art form kind of peters out. You, you don't really get that many of these songs going into the new millennium. You maybe get one every couple of years, every five years, maybe. But do, do you think, did, I mean, did, did the fact that this song was so massive, and it, and it really was, it was one of the most unavoidable songs I can remember for my entire lifetime. Did this song basically kill the big soundtrack single? You know, I don't really have a theory on it, except to say that that is what happened. It seems that, <laughs> you know, there was a song in Pearl Harbor that Faith all right. sang, that was sort of tipped to be the next one of these. And, and it was a hit, but it, it was not a, the monster, obviously, that, that this became. No, sir. Uh,
1: and I think, you know, just uh, tastes change. Uh, scores have changed. You get, I don't know, some atonal scores. Some, it, it was just a shift in music. Uh, I would, But I wouldn't blame Celine.
3: Nothing personal to by the way. The two albums were. Because you know? yeah. the song was on both her album, Let's Talk About Love,
1: and also on the Titanic soundtrack, which came out at the same time. And they, both of those albums sold 30 million copies worldwide. And then, I don't know if you remember this, but they released a, another Titanic soundtrack, Back to Titanic, which had My oh, wow. Heart Will Go On spliced in their dialogue from the movie. <laughs> um, which also became a hit. It yeah. was just, the, the song just, I mean, it could not go away. Like, I, there was a hilarious story someone told me about how the song. We were talking about wait, uh, places in pop culture, the song has popped up. And that it was used in an episode of Gilmore Girls as the sort of the score to a funeral for a dog. And it was like
0: somehow very effective at that <laughs> moment as well.
3: Yeah, and it, it, this song's kind of gone through eight different lifetimes since it was released. I, I feel like. Uh, obviously, the backlash to it was was very severe in, in the years following Titanic, and the, as was the, the backlash to Titanic in general. Uh, but it's it, it since kind of come in and out a couple times since. I feel like uh, you know, kind of circling back into 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 wave, and you know, people who were you know my age at the time that the movie was released, and they, they still have some kind of you know, either nostalgic affection for it, or, or they, they've just kind of gotten over their their teenage irony, and that and now they realize, wow, this this was a really great song. Uh, is, is, it a, is it a song that you still enjoy listening to? It's so funny. I hadn't heard it in a long time, and then I heard it a lot while I was working on it. I can story. imagine, yeah. And it, 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 I have to say, it brought back all of these emotions from when I had first heard it. Mm. Uh,
1: it was really sort of fun to revisit. And even, you know, we have talked about the Walter A. and the controversy about, you know, his role in, in producing the radio version. No uh, one disputes that he produced it and. all of these feelings these mixed feelings he has about it he hopes like aliens are listening
0: to
3: it <laughs> and they probably are too it's probably on the alien you know soft rock station as we speak oh uh, absolutely alright well thank you so much Mickey this has been awesome uh, I look forward to everyone getting to read your piece tomorrow and I look forward to seeing Celine Dion do the song it's Sunday night on the Billboard Music Awards will you be watching? me too I'll be watching of course alright thank man. you so
0: much I really appreciate it